It doesn't have a powerful closing chord like the last bumper, right? I'm used to that last slide being my cue, but I don't have that. So it's the soft landing into my cue. So hey, I'm glad you guys are here. Thanks again for being here. A couple of housekeeping things before we press into the uh, sermon what God has. Um, As I shared in a video that went out this week, uh, man, Calvary has a great opportunity to partner with a bunch of different folks and ministries around the world who really are serving all different people groups in all different regions, um, doing amazing work for the good of Jesus. And as a pastor and for our staff, we get a great opportunity to kind of keep up and know what those folks are doing, but you don't always have that opportunity. And so we love to carve out uh, different times during the year to let you know what our partners are doing. And so this coming week, starting the middle of this week, we're going to have our impact conference start, and this is when different of our ministry partners around the world are going to be here, and they're going to tell us a little bit about what they do and the people they serve and, and ways that we can get involved, and so there's going to be a lot of that that happens during our normal ministry events, and so through kids' night out and our middle school and high school nights and uh, men's night and a ladies' event that regularly occur, we're going to have some ministry partners there. And then a special event that I kind of already highlighted on Saturday. It is an experiential road trip. And here's what we want to do. We want to get us out of the walls of this place and just have a great opportunity to, in a different way, learn about a group of people uh, that God deeply loves, those people of the Muslim faith. And so, like I said in the video, and you can look back at it throughout that day, we're going to have an opportunity to, uh, you know, visit and learn more about what their beliefs are. We'll have an opportunity to engage in a different place. Man, how do we love? How do we cross our beliefs and their beliefs? How do we engage them with the truth of Jesus and the hope of a gospel? We're going to have some awesome ethnic food and then some time of purposeful prayer and just an amazing story of transformation and life change. And so in order to make sure we know transportation things and food things, there is an RSVP for that. So if that interests you, you can... Uh, fill out, uh, there's a, a sign-up sheet in the lobby. There is a way to do that online if you're interested in being part of next Saturday's road trip. And then next Sunday, after we wrap up the conference, we're going to have something called our Start Here class. And if you're newer to Calvary and you're like, man, how do they do things here? How do I get involved? What is their strategy? What do they believe? This class is just a great opportunity for you to come. It's about an hour where we overview Calvary Church at a 40,000-foot level if you've been here for a while and you're interested in membership. We'll talk about, man, what does membership mean? How do we do that? Why do we do that? What's the expectations of members? And so next Sunday, the 10th, after this this service, uh, we'll have that opportunity at that class. And so I'd love if that might be helpful for some of you. We will not get your social security number and stalk you, but we would want to give information about our church if you're trying to figure out if this is the place 
that God might be calling and leading you and your family. And we're really excited because after uh, this service, we're going to have a baptism class. On October 17th, we have about eight people who, well, not about, we have eight people uh, who have already expressed an interest in being baptized. Now, will they all be baptized? I don't know, but we're really, really excited about that, right? People taking just a step of faith. And so after this service, we're having a class to understand what is baptism? How do we do it here at Calvary? And if you've never been baptized, <clears throat> there is still room in my office for you to come to that class after this service to learn about it and think about it and pray about it. And I know, well, I don't know, but I strongly think that there's at least one of you out there, right? Baptism does not make you a Christian, but there's probably one person who's like, man, <clears throat> I've been a Christian for like 37 years and I've never been baptized. But like, seriously, I've been a Christian so long. Do I really need to like get wet in a tank and, you know, change clothes in this cinder block building somewhere? And man, you do. Because baptism is an act of obedience. And Jesus says people who love him should be baptized. And I would just challenge you, if you're in that second category, I've shared this before. I was that person. I was a guy who grew up a Christian and never been baptized, and then I was practicing law and doing pretty well, and I'm like, dude, I'm a litigator. Like, seriously, I'm going to go be bat dunked in a pool? Like, and it was a street preacher who looked me in the eye and said, you are the most arrogant person I know. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and he's like, your pride is keeping you from obeying Jesus. And I was like, okay, bro, I'll jump in the river right here. Let's get it done, right? Don't let your pride keep you <clears throat> from obeying Jesus. So there's a chance to learn more about that after this. And then October 17th, we're going to celebrate what God's doing. So just want to let you know about that. And uh, as I'll share in a second, man, we're kicking off a new series. So let me pray and for God to work in this time through his word. And then we'll get into the sermon and what he has for us. Father, you know why every person's in the room today, and uh, you know what you have for them. And we know that you say in Scripture that your word doesn't return void, but it accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. And so I just pray, Father, as we open up your word again this morning, that um, the message that you want all of us to hear, we will hear, and that the Holy Spirit will open up our hearts and our minds to make us receptive to it. As we as a church are going to celebrate baptisms, I just thank you for being able to celebrate life change. I pray for this upcoming week as we just get to learn the stories about what our partners in different parts of the world are doing for the good of Jesus and think about ways we can love people around here and share the truth of Jesus and what that looks like for us. And so, Father, I just pray that you will work in that time. I pray right now as a bunch of international students are on a retreat at Camp Spofford. And some of them may be hearing about Jesus for the first time, that your spirit will work in there as well. So, God, you're doing a work. <clears throat> We're grateful that we can be part of it. And will you please help us now as we break open your word, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is when we officially jump into our new sermon series, the sermon series of James, the study in the book of James. And if you're newer to Calvary, what we do here is 99% of the time we open up a book of the Bible and we work our way through it, kind of chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, largely verse by verse. And I'm really excited about this series in James. I'm excited about what God is going to teach us, what he has for us, right? And I'm also excited because like I shared last week, it gives you and I and us together a chance to rally around some things. It gives us a chance together as individuals to coalesce 
It's my big word for the day. A chance to coalesce about what does God want us to be like individually and together as a church we can unify around those values and those realities. And I'm just excited about what God might do through this study and through the time we have together in the book of James. And as we set the stage for James, right, as we're about to get into it in a little bit, man, here's the reality. Every day, you and I, we're confronted by different things. Every day, we're confronted by different circumstances, by different situations, by different people, right? Every day, different things come across our paths. I mean, just think about this past weekend. And if the weekend's not full, think about this past week, right? What's been going on? Has anything confronted you this past weekend already that's caused you some stress? Anything confronted you this past weekend or week that your life was going in one direction and there's been this unexpected curveball? Did somebody this weekend get angry at you? Did you get angry at somebody, right? And hopefully you're not angry at me if I go long in the sermon, right? This weekend or this week, have you faced some just unexpected financial situation that you didn't see coming. This past weekend, this past week, what's confronted you? What event, what circumstance, what situation with a person has come across your radar that you weren't necessarily expecting? And each of those things that we talk about, right, whether it's your decision you have to make or trusting God's plan, each of those topics are things that we're going to cover throughout our weeks in the book of James. But, but here's the reality as well. Every time you're confronted with something, you know what else happens? You have a choice about what you're going to do. You're, you're confronted with something. I'm confronted with something. We're confronted with something. And every time we're confronted with a circumstance, an event, a new person, a situation, we also then have a choice about how we're going to respond. And there's one more layer to that. Every time we're confronted with a circumstance and something confronts us, we have a choice of how to respond. And the reality is there is a way that Jesus wants his people to respond to the things that they face in his life, in our lives. So you see, how we respond to those circumstances that confront us, it matters to Jesus. How we individually respond, how we collectively respond. And like we said a few weeks ago, right, Jesus doesn't want his followers to simply believe the right things. Jesus doesn't want his followers to simply know the right things. Believing the right things about who Jesus was and how he's a substitute for us and died in our place so that we can be stored with God, that is critically important. That is essential, right? I'm not downplaying that at all. Knowing the right things, doctrine and truth, and not getting that off of Facebook, actually getting that from the Bible is critically important, but that's not the end of the story because Jesus doesn't simply want people who know him to believe the right things. He also wants those people to do the right things. I have about an eight-week-old yellow lab puppy named Ford. Now, you're going to hear about my eight-week yellow lab puppy named Ford if you stick around for like years because yellow labs are puppies for about six years, right? But, But here's the deal with Ford. Anybody here ever had a yellow lab puppy before? Well, well, here's the deal with Ford. Ford knows that he is not supposed to eat my Apple TV remote. I have taught him that. 
I have explained him to that, right? I think deep in his little yellow black puppy, he believes that he should not eat the Apple TV remote. He's been in Yellow Lab Sunday school to learn, don't eat my Apple TV remote. But you know what that puppy does the second that I turn my head? The second that I turn my head, that puppy like, I mean, he, I don't even know how he does it. He needs to be a drug sniffing dog. He like, he finds that Apple TV remote. He puts it in his little puppy mouth. He looks at me and then he runs under their table and hides, right? He knows what he should do. He probably believes that he should do that. I don't know. But man, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And how many times, right, I sit down, I look at my dog, and I'm like, what are you doing? Haven't I told you how I want you to behave when I'm watching football, <laughs> right? Don't you know what you're supposed to do? And this is not what you're supposed to do. And how many times does God look down at his people and say, look, you know what you're supposed to do. You believe the right things. You know the right things. Why are you running around with the Apple TV in your mouth? Do what you're supposed to do. This is really important to Jesus. And when he was here on earth, man, he gave a sermon on a hill one day that in the Bible is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, where part of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to explain to his followers, hey, if you're going to be part of my kingdom... This is how you treat other people. This is how you live. This is your values. This is how you care. These are your priorities. He wanted to shape what people who believed in him also did and how they thought and how they acted. Now, some of you are probably thinking like, why in the world are we talking about the Sermon on the Mount if we're supposed to be in the book of James? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Because several decades after Jesus, who gave the Sermon on the Mount, was murdered and resurrected and ascended into heaven, his brother, a guy named James, who was leading a church, looked around at Christians. And you can read about what was happening in the book of Acts. There were amazing things happening, but there were also conflicts and divisions and compromises and all sorts of things that were just not healthy and right in the churches. And, and James looks around and he's like, guys... 30 or 40 years ago, my brother told you how to believe in him, but he also told you what it looks like for people who believe in him, what he expects them to do. And so what James did was he wrote a letter to his believers in Jesus to help remind them of what they should do. There's this interesting connection between what James wrote in the Sermon on the Mount. This is interesting. I didn't know this until I started studying. There's about 18 references or allusions throughout the book of James back to what Jesus says. And it's an if James is saying, is like, look, I think what Jesus told you about how you should live has slipped out of your mind. So I'm going to kind of key back to that. I'm going to trigger that. And I'm going to unpack some of those things and those details. And so for the next several months, we're going to walk through the things that James says to me and the things that James says to you about how we, for those of us who believe in Jesus, should live. And as we talk about those things in the weeks together, for those of you who don't believe in Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus. So the question becomes, right, as we, we move into this series, what's the first topic that James addresses? He's going to talk about a lot of stuff. We teed that up two weeks ago. But the first topic that James talks about as he puts pen to paper is the topic of trials. Trials. So what do you think the first topic that we're going to talk about is? Okay, you've had slightly more coffee than the first service. 
But I, I, let me remind you too, it really is free, okay? So if you need a little more coffee to get you going, grab some free coffee. Yes, the first topic we're going to talk about is trials because that's what James talks about. And then throughout the book as he talks about topics we're going to talk about. And so if you got your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. If you've got a device, close Angry Birds and Subway Surfers and open it up. To James chapter 1, last week I was in Alabama with my kids, a parents weekend, as I said, and man, we went to this uh, church that a few of them go to, and they're just a, man, there was this amazing 30-year-old pastor with some cool skinny jeans on, right, little, little t-shirt, uh, man, and, and he was good. Like, I kind of wish I was there listening to him instead of listening to my own voice draw. But the one thing that he said, right, this cool, he said, look, look, he said how he loved hearing the pages of a Bible turn when people open them up. And, and we don't hear that anymore. And he just briefly said, man, when he was a kid growing up in the church, it was like, ooh, that's the sound right there. He said, like, when he was a kid growing up in the church, this sound right here, he called it raindrops. That was so nice. And I'm like... I remember that, that sound of pages flipping in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, all that to say, flip it to James chapter 1. It is still cool if you swipe it up on a device, we just won't get the benefit of raindrops. And so here's what we read in the first few verses of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of in the dispersion, greeting. Now, Here's James's audience. He's writing this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. A big fancy title that essentially just means Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. These are Christians. These are believers. 12 tribes refers back to the Old Testament, the tribes of Israel. And, and the unique thing about these 12 tribes is they were experiencing and known as people of the dispersion. That means that they were spread all throughout the region. They were living in different areas. At one point, many of them had been uh, living in an area and they had a life that was working, it was making sense, and they had a good job and they had good finances and their kids were going to good school and everything was working. But then when different enemies came in to attack them, man, they either fled because of persecution or they got re kind of up and planted in another country. These people who were in dispersion, man, they, they weren't most of them living in their homeland. They had a past that they could look back to that was really easy and good, but because of persecution for their faith or just persecution because of politics, they had to leave that all behind and starting over. And for many of them, starting over was really hard. And as they would get this letter here at Red, man, they were not in an easy place. They were still facing persecution because of their faith. They would still be facing persecution because they were Jewish. They would be facing persecution because they were Jewish Christians. A lot of these readers who received that financially, oof, I mean, they were just scraping by. The people to whom this letter were written, they would have known what it was like <clears throat> to have trials. They would have known what it was like to have circumstances confront them that weren't easy. And what does Jesus' brother write to these people who would have known about trials. He writes this in the next verse in chapter 2, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, it's really interesting what this verse doesn't say. And I wish it said it, but it doesn't. It would be really, really nice 
if this verse says, count it all joy, my brothers, for I'm going to tell you how to escape any trial of any kind. It doesn't say that. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when? When? The reality is that people who know Jesus and who believe in Jesus, right, we're, we're all going to face trials. And there's no magic bullet to avoid them. But you already know that. Whether you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus or don't even know what you know, believe, you, you do know that none of us get through life without facing a trial. Various kinds, right? Some, eh, inconvenient. I had to change, well, attempt to change a tire in a car as I was getting kids to go to college in the middle of the Bridgeport DMV. That was not pleasant. Sometimes changing tires in the rain, sometimes really, really hard things. We all know we all face these things. Are you facing a trial now? Are you facing something in your life? It's just hard. Maybe two years ago, maybe 20 years ago, you looked ahead to this moment, this season of life that you're in today, and you thought to yourself, when I'm in that season, when I'm a senior in high school, or when I'm graduating college, or when I just get married, or I'm ready to have my second kid, or when I get a new job, or when I retire, you, you looked ahead and you thought, that's what my life is going to look like, but you're in that season now, and that's not what your life looks like. It's not the season you anticipate. It's not the season that you want. And in those moments, you and me, we have all sorts of different emotions when those trials come. We feel trapped. We feel anxious. <clears throat> we feel angry. We feel hopeless, paralyzed. Some of us turn to unhealthy ways of coping. And the question for these readers and the questions for us is when that happens... How do people who believe the right things about Jesus do the right things in the middle of the trials? How do we navigate those circumstances? What perspective do we have? Well, he, look what he says. He's kind of already told us. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If the verse, if the book of James ended there, ugh, Right? If the book of James ended there, what it would seem to suggest is, hey, if you have something bad happen to you, you should be happy just because something bad happened to you. Yes, I rolled my car off a cliff and it's ruined. Yeah, I'm so happy that happened to me. I, I almost did roll my wife's truck in New Hampshire off a muddy bank. I've never been so scared that I was about to do that. But I didn't do it. But what that seems to suggest is if I had done that, then, oh, I should be happy about this bad thing that's happened. But the reality is the verse doesn't end there. Because there's a very, very important next clause in verses 3 to 4. Because the very next clause is this. For. Okay, here's what he's saying. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Not just because you're facing that trial. But here's the reason for the joy. Okay, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right, right. Here, here's what he's saying. He's not saying that when you face a hard time, you should be happy simply because you face the hard time. The reason for joy is not in isolation because you faced a trial. 
The reason for joy, what James is saying, is because of how God might use the trial and the product that might come out of that really hard thing. The reason for joy is because God might use that thing and through that thing do something important and do something necessary in our lives. But I think we sometimes get tripped up on this. I think we sometimes hear, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and many times, and we think to ourselves, okay, that means that I got to get really excited about this trial that we face. When we get a diagnosis, it's not the diagnosis that we want. We sometimes think, okay, I've got to have joy for this. This is a good thing. No, diagnoses that you don't want, those in and of themselves are not good things. That dysfunction in your family in and of itself is a hard thing. That betrayal is a hard thing. But what the good thing is, is what God can leverage and bring about through that very bad thing. Here's what James is trying to say. God never wants us to try to trick ourselves into thinking that bad things are good. I think sometimes when we navigate trials, again, we say the car rolling off the cliff per se itself by definition is good. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying the trial is good. He's saying what God might be able to do through the trial. God never wants us to try to trick ourselves into thinking that bad things are good. But God never wants us to forget that he can leverage really bad things to do something in us that is ultimately good. This doesn't change the fact that what you faced is really bad. Because a lot of us face really bad things. This doesn't change the fact that what we face can be really bad. But what God never wants us to forget, according to James, is that he can leverage really bad things to do something in us that is ultimately good. So how does this work, right? What's the progression? What does God do through us in trials? Well, James... Jesus' brother, then lays out this kind of progression of what happens. We've already seen it. First part, count it all joy, my brothers, and you meet trials of various kind. <clears throat> so the first thing that happens in this little flow chart is we encounter a trial. But then the verse says that something else happens after that. For you know that the testing of your faith, this trial then tests our faith. That, that word test there, it means to show the genuineness of something, to show the strength of something, the true quality of something. It's like when you cruise into a jeweler. I've never done this. I've seen it on TV, right? And you say like, hey, I got this diamond. And they're like, okay. And they get like that honking huge deal and stick it in their eye, right? And then they look at it to see if it's real, to see if it's true to see the quality of it and the strength of it. And what this is saying is that when you encounter a trial, the trial tests the quality of our faith. It is in the midst of a trial that the strength of faith is revealed. It is in the midst of a trial that the strength of faith is revealed. But listen, people who have really, really strong faith, as they go through a trial, that doesn't preclude them from questioning God. Strong faith and questioning God can go hand in hand. A person's strength who is revealed in the middle of the trial doesn't mean that that person will maybe not, well, they might be angry at God. 
A person who has strong faith in the middle of the trial, they still may have moments when they literally feel like God doesn't care for them. Those feelings, those thoughts don't preclude strong faith. But what a trial shows about a person who has strong faith, even if and even when they think all those things, is at the end of the day, they come back to a place and say, God, I am angry. God, I don't understand it. God, to be honest, in this moment I feel alone. But God, I'm going to fall on you. Because where else am I going to go? That's the strength of faith that's revealed in that trial. I will trust you, even as I'm angry at you, even as I'm questioning you, even as I think you may not care. Where where else am I going to go? One of the privileges, truly, of being a pastor and... uh, If God ever showed up on a billboard and said, well, I guess he wouldn't talk to me. If God ever showed up and said, Peter, I am now calling you to be a U.S. Marshal. Oh, that'd be good. If God ever called me to do something else and not be a pastor, one of the things that I'd miss is the uh, rare, rare privilege that not a lot of jobs offer of people inviting you into the most painfully intimate moments of their grief and their loss and their devastation. Um, It is an honor that in different moments for people in our church and elsewhere that I've been allowed to walk with families who are just absolutely hurting and just incredibly personal moments of life and of death. I mean, that is an honor. And, and, you know, it's interesting as you walk through families like that, and some of you in this room have said this very thing to me and other people's have, but at some point in those conversations, as, as the pain is just there, there's this, this comment that many of you have shared and others have shared this word, okay, if it wasn't for my faith, I couldn't have made it through. <clears throat> if it wasn't for my belief in God, I never could have made it through this moment. That is a trial that has shown the quality of faith. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the very next step of the progression, which is this, right? Then that testing of your faith, you know that the testing of your faith then produces steadfastness. The next thing that comes from this is this, 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 the trial enables us to remain steadfast. It's interesting. The testing of the faith actually doesn't just enable us, it produces in us. This ability to remain steadfast, right? Endurance, this inner quality of faith. That trial and that tested faith then somehow produce within us this ability that we can stand. And then the end goal. The end goal that that James is saying is, look, I'm not telling you to be happy about the trial. That would be crazy. What I'm telling you to be about is even though that very, very bad thing happens, there is a way that God and his love doesn't want to waste it. Wouldn't it be heartless if God allowed us to go through painful things because of life in a fallen world? And he's just like, eh, let me just, let's just let them suffer. Let's just waste that. But isn't it good that God, as we experience things in a fallen world that are so hard, says, man, I, I don't want that to be pointless I want to work in it. I want to redeem it. 
And this is the end result that he gets to. Then the final product that is the reason for James saying to the steadfast, verse 4 of chapter 1, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Perfect and complete, lacking to nothing. Perfect doesn't mean sinless, but it carries with this idea of being perfectly developed, that, that you're fulfilling, that you're now growing into the person that God wants you to be. What this is pointing to, right, this idea of that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, is a person who is mature in Jesus. A person who better reflects Jesus that you become more and more the person God wants you to be and more and more like Jesus. Do you know what God is alt- one of the things that God is most concerned about in my life and your life? One of the things, it's this. It's this. That God doesn't want to leave us who we were. That God wants us to become the people who we were originally intended to be and God wants you to reflect his son and to look like Jesus. And sometimes what God will do is we'll work through a trial to get us closer to this. There's a lot of, man, there's a lot of stuff in my heart that God still needs to rip out. There's a lot of me that looks nothing like Jesus. I look selfish. I look like I want to control everything. I look like I worry a lot. Sound familiar? Why can't that be the end product? Why can't the Bible say, I want to make you into a person who's selfish, wants to control everything, and just worries? Yes, I've arrived. That would be amazing. It doesn't say that. It says, I don't want you to be that person. And God is so committed to making you and to making me and to making us into the image of Jesus so that we can reflect him and so that we can bring glory to him and so that we can be satisfied in him. And our good and loving Father loves us so much that he doesn't want to waste the pain. And he wants to use the pain sometimes in ways to bring about this. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 1.6. I hope it's not Philippians 1.16. I'd look like a moron. I think it's 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The pronouns there are so important. He who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. I'm glad the verse doesn't read, he who began a good work in you expects you to complete it, so you better get busy. doesn't say that. He who began it will be faithful to complete it. And some ways and some days and sometimes the way in which he works to complete it are through this. We encounter trials. First big idea right here is about how to navigate a trial is this. Know that God is working in today's trial to make you into who he wants you to be. Know that God is working in today's trial to make you into who he wants you to be. And and here's another truth, right, that we see from this. God will not always change our difficult circumstance, but he wants to always, you can't really see that, says use our difficult circumstances to change us. God may not always change our difficult circumstances, but he always wants to use our difficult circumstances to change us. 
And in a trial, what James says is the first way that people who believe in God do the right thing is by trying to grasp hold of this. But even as we grasp hold of this, that doesn't mean it's easy, right? Even if we kind of understand that, okay, yeah, 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 man, there's going to be moments when trials come where we don't know what to do. Where we're like, okay, I don't know the next step. I don't know how to move forward. I don't know what decision I make. What, what do we do in those moments? James tells us. And he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, this whole big section of text that we're going to study the next two weeks, all of it has to do with how we navigate trials. And what he's saying is, okay, if you, as you're navigating a trial, as you're trying to cling to the perspective that God was working through it and working in you, at that same time, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach will be given to him. Here is your first Greek lesson of the day. I know some of you want a free gyro or gyro, depending on how you pronounce it with it. You will not get any, but you will get a Greek grammatical lesson. Ready? In the Greek, if any of you lacks wisdom, is something called, ready? It's going to be amazing, a first class condition. Oh, you're like, dude, is that like first class, like I get the fuzzy seats and like gelato served to me or what? First class condition is a way in the Greek to say, oh, and by the way, it is going to happen. It's a way to say not, it should better be translated instead of if any of you lacks wisdom, it should say, oh, by the way, when you lack wisdom. Well, the reality is, according to this, what it's saying is you are going to go through some trials and you are going to lack wisdom. You are going to not know what to do. <clears throat> you are not going to know the way forward and the next steps, right? There are going to be trials that come that you're just like, I don't know what to do. Now, I confess this in the first service. My wife sitting here. It took a lot of humility, but I'll confess it to you as well. I'm not always the best handyman, okay? I like to posture like I am. Let me tell you, I go to Home Depot, dude, you'd be like, that boy's built some houses. I mean, I got the pencil in the ear. I got the boots. I got the Home Depot like, okay, you grunt a lot at Home Depot, right? <clears throat> you don't ask guys about, how's your day going? You do a lot of like, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> I got that down mastered. If you saw me, you, I got my forearm, but, but once I get through Home Depot, I'm like, okay, I got this tool and this stuff. I don't know what to do with it now, right? I, I shared this story, I think, the, probably the Sunday after it happened. But a couple of years ago, my wife and I decided, well, we're going to renovate. We're going to do it because we ain't going to pay $90,000 to have it done. We're going to renovate our bathroom, okay? And it's probably not the best idea to renovate a bathroom with a person who's not very handy, but I had her tricked at that point. I'm like, yeah, baby, we can do it. I'll go down to Home Depot. Ah, I'll get some lumber. I don't know. Okay, so there was this moment where we got rid of the old creepy sink and we put in this, we we're supposed to put in this beautiful pedestal sink. Anybody ever seen a pedestal sink? It's a pedestal, right? Well, I had to do two things. The two things I had to do at that moment were I had to like run the old plumbing into this pedestal pedestal so that like, I don't know, what's it called? Like a J trap or a P trap? I don't even know. Who cares, right? So that the water drains, it doesn't go on your floor. It goes in the house. And it was old plumbing and it was new plumbing. Nah. And my solution when you're having to do plumbing stuff is you just keep cutting. Like, if you can't get the pipe up, just keep cutting it. Problem is, you end up with a pipe about that big and it don't do no good, right? So, this pedestal sink. Literally, this is, I do exaggerate. I might be slightly exaggerating. I think there was this moment that came that about for an hour and 10 minutes, I was just on the bathroom floor staring 
because nothing that I was doing was working. And I was getting frustrated, right? And then there was this deal where, like, you had to, like, like mount the sink to the actual wall. And you had to use screw. So I did. After about, after Casey realized I had no idea what I was doing, you know what I did? After about an hour and ten minutes of sitting on my floor not knowing what to do, I, like, called somebody. <laughs> Pretty smart idea. You're like, dude, you should have done that in the beginning, right? <clears throat> and, and what I did now... I didn't just want one person to know how stupid I am. I called two different people for the two different jobs. I called one of the elders in our church, who I believe is sitting in this room, to come over and do the pipe. And I've been sitting there. I'm like, yeah, the pipe doesn't work. It just did it. And he's like, oh, yeah. Okay, done. What? Then to mount this sink into the wall. I think if I remember correctly, I called Jim Taylor. He used to be in construction. I'm like, Jim, you got to come over and help me, man. Because this, look, I'm just telling you, dude, it is impossible to mount this sink. You got to do the screw backwards. It's supposed to do the thing. It's supposed to like expand behind the wall. Jim, it's impossible. I can't do it. And he's like, okay, I'll be over in five minutes. I think it was Jim. Anyway, whoever came over, they looked. They took a thing. They took a, they went, all right, I'll see you later. Bye. Ah! It's crazy because I had no idea what to do. So I asked somebody, have you ever seen a kid who doesn't know how to tie their shoes try to tie their shoes? Have you ever watched that scenario happen? They don't know what they're doing. Forget the Velcro nonsense. They're into their big boy shoes, right? And they got laces on them. And you've done the hole. You take the bunny. You go around the tree. You go in the hole, whatever it is, right? And there's one day and they're like, we're like, we got to get to church. Why is that not for me anymore? Because I come to church for almost a decade. I've gone to church all by myself. It has helped my marriage and my parenting and my sanctification. <laughs> but some of you don't do that. You go to church with your family, and it's always church morning. And the, you're like, put on your shoes. Let me put them on. He's like, Daddy, I'm going to put on my shoes today. And you're like, no, no, no. we got to get to church. He's like, Daddy, I can do it. Okay. And so the kid like sits down, and you're like, oh, yeah. and like he takes a little thing, and it's like a big knot. And you're like, no, what about the bunny around the tree? He's like, I can do it, Dad. And he keeps looping and he keeps nodding. And he keeps looping and he keeps nodding and nodding and looping. And finally, you're like, i got to get your mama in here because this is out of control, right? And he doesn't know what he's doing. And finally, when there's this massive knot the size of, like, Saturn, he says to you, can you help me? He asks. And, and what this verse is saying is this, look, there's going to be moments when you're sitting on the bathroom floor in the middle of a crisis. You don't know what to do. And there's going to be moments when you face a crisis or you face a situation, you try to fix it yourself, and you're just making it worse. And you're just pulling the knot and pulling the knot. And in that moment, ask. Ask somebody who knows what they're doing. Ask somebody who wants to help you know the next thing you should do. This word ask, interestingly, it's a command. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, in those moments when you think maybe you don't know as much of God, then you should ask. It's a command to always ask. Interestingly, last nerdy thing for the day, the, the tense of this verb is it's, it's conveying a command that is to be done repeatedly. You ask, and you ask, and you ask, and you ask, and you ask. It's like the song we sang, I run to the Father again and again and again and again. I run to the Father again and again and again and again. And I ask my dad 
What do I do? As parents, this is one little tidbit of parenting. My kids are getting older now. I'm still not a grandpa, so that's good. Um, but I, I had this vow that I was never really going to talk on parenting until I was a grandparent. Because I have been in churches where some 21-year-old who has no kids gets up and says, for the next five weeks, I'm going to be doing a parenting, you know. And I'm like, bro, why don't you be a parent for about five minutes before you start telling me what to do, right? But, but I'm, I mean, I've got a little bit of track. But so here's my one little parenting snippet for the day. You know what our job as parents is? Our job as parents is to raise our kids to get them to a place where they're no longer dependent on us. Some of you did know that, right? Some of you parents are like <clears throat> still making sure your 30-year-old brush their teeth every morning. <laughs> okay. The goal of a parent is to raise their children so that that child becomes completely independent of them and can take care of themselves. This is why there are none of you carrying your 17-year-old daughter around in a car seat, right? You don't. What do we do with our children? We don't keep them in that car seat forever. We don't carry them in the stroller. We teach them to crawl. Then we teach them to walk so that one day they can be grown-ups who walk on their own. The goal of a parent is to raise your child to make them completely independent of you. But you know what the role of God is? He does just the opposite. What God does with you and what God does with me is try to make us and grow us into a place where we're completely dependent on him. Interesting. As a dad, I want my kids to be independent. As a dad, God wants me to be dependent. And part of how I get dependent is by asking and asking and asking. Second way... The people who believe the right things should properly navigate a trial and do the right things in a trial is to seek <clears throat> wisdom from God. So, so let's just kind of wrap up what we've seen and then two applications and then we'll wind down with some worship. Here's what we've seen today, right, as we've jumped into James. First, two ways that people who believe the right things should properly do the right things in a trial. Know that God is working in today's trial to make you into who he wants you to be and seek <clears throat> wisdom from God. Seek wisdom from God. So, how can we practically apply this, right? What do we do with it? Well, if I had time, I would have put an index card on all of your chairs. I didn't. If I had even more time, I'd have had like a cool little handout on all of your chairs, but I don't. So you're going to have to use a pen or a paper or di digitally by yourself. But here, I want you just to ask two questions, answer two questions. The first one is this. Uh, if you had that piece of paper, a hard thing that I presently face is blank. A hard thing that I presently face is blank. What would you put in that blank? Parenting, marriage, addiction, broken relationships, unforgiveness, career, getting old. A hard thing that I presently face is blank. And then whatever you write in there, the second thing is this. In this trial, I need to decide or figure out blank. And I would, you don't all have to do it. I mean, everybody's different. But I do think in moments in life, there's, there's a value to putting something down, whether that's typing it into your notes on your phone or writing it. I think there's value for some of you to take 40 seconds and just owning the fact that this is what I'm going through that's hard and this is what I don't need to do in that moment. 
whether you write it down in a journal or on your phone or whether you know it, then there's, there's two things that I want you to do. Whatever this thing is, whatever the hard thing you presently face is, I would love for you this week to spend some time with God and ask two things. God, this is what I've written in my box. This is what is hard for me right now. And will you ask God to help you trust that he is transforming you in the pain? Will you ask God to help you trust that he is transforming you in the pain? And will you ask God to help you believe that he is good? Whatever's in that box this week, you find some time with God, and when you say, God, with that box, will you help me trust that you are transforming me in this pain, and will your Holy Spirit help me believe that you are good because everything is screaming that you are bad? And then, <clears throat> whatever you've written here that you need to decide or figure out, Whatever that's in that box, okay, God, I need wisdom about this. Well, the verse said, you ask and you ask and you ask and you ask. And so, guess what? Ask for wisdom. And I would challenge you, every day this week till next Sunday, would you pray specifically for wisdom about this? Whatever's in that box that you need to figure out, every day this week, will you pray for wisdom about this? Some of you are like, every day? Ah, <clears throat> oh, hey, I promise you, some of you are on Facebook every hour of every day. You brush your teeth every day, for which we're very grateful. You can find time to go before your Heavenly Father every day this week and say, I need to know what to do in this. And I don't know if you're going to tell me in the next seven days, God, but I'm going to repeatedly and regularly ask you and ask you and ask you. Let me invite the worship team up here. I'm going to wrap us up with a time of prayer, and then we're going to conclude our service. We're going to end with a song, Come to the Altar. And interestingly, it's a great transition from that, right, this idea of, look, whatever brokenness you're feeling, whatever situation, whatever sin, God says, come to me, God says, ask, and we're going to affirm through song our ability to do that. So I'd ask you to stand, I'll pray, and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you uh, for your goodness. Thank you that every tear we've ever cried, the Bible speaks that you know that, right? And, and in beautiful, symbolic, meaningful language, it talks about how those are held in a bottle, that you value them and you know them. And for those of us this morning, Father, who are going through hard times, uh, will your spirit just help this truth of your word to... Do whatever it is you would like to do. And Father, we're grateful that you never leave us and you never forsake us and you never get tired of hearing from us and that you're always there. And thank you that your arms always are open wide and will you help our own pride and our own desire for control not to keep us from running to you so that we can learn what it is you're trying to teach us. Be honored as we sing this song, Lord. I pray your blessing over us throughout this week. Amen.